Welcome to the August edition of The Compliance Life. This month, I visit with Scott Garland, who's had a most interesting non-traditional compliance and ethics career, but I thought it would be very instructive if we had him on. So, this month on The Compliance Life, Scott Garland. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode one, academic career and early professional career of Scott Garland. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with Audrey Harris on The Compliance Life. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back with another month's episodes in The Compliance Life. This month, we are featuring Scott Garland. Scott's a managing director at Affiliated Monitors. I had the chance to visit with Scott a little bit earlier on another podcast, and he frankly has one of the most unique journeys into compliance that I've come across. So I asked him if maybe we could spend a little bit more time talking about his journey to and from compliance with a twist. And Scott said yes, so here we are, Scott. So first of all, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, thank you for coming back on, and I'm greatly looking forward to exploring your story a little bit. So am I. Thanks for having me back. Scott, could you tell us a little bit about your academic background? It didn't start out illegally focused, and then your move over to law school. Yeah, I started out academically in a fairly analytical field. So I entered the Massachusetts Institute of Technology to major in software engineering. I was, you know, that first group of teenagers who learned how to program before they went to college. But along the way, I decided that I didn't want to sit in front of a computer all day. I didn't realize that everybody was going to sit in front of a computer all day. And I wanted to engage with the world a little more, so I graduated with a BSc in economics. A lot of math, a lot of statistics, and a bit of policy as well. And so that's what, I, that's what I did. I was privileged to study with Professor Paul Krugman, who writes for New York Times and has a lot of interesting research he did. And that really brought me out, I think, into the world and thinking about how things should be, how things should not be. I've interviewed one other compliance professional who has an economics degree. His was a little more finance-focused, but it gave him a set of analytical tools that, frankly, People like myself, who have a history degree and then a law degree, don't have, can't learn, won't learn, but don't bring to that background. How do you explore a little bit this kind of interest in the wedding of policy and even the analytical portion of economics to your law degree? Yeah, I. so I think the analytical tools that you just talked about with economics, the one of the great benefits is that economists are very good at understanding their assumptions when they go into things. They're very clear at defining what they know, what they don't know, and what they're assuming, and then trying to test what the data that's in front of them against those assumptions. And maybe they find out that their assumptions are wrong. But when you do that, it gives you a fairly clear view of what it is you're looking at. So 
When I was doing economics, one of the things that was frustrating to me was that we would learn about a variety of economic policies that could really benefit people. For example, like a carbon tax, which economists generally agree is one of the best ways to combat climate change. And the end of the lecture would always end up, but we're never going to pass this because politically it's not feasible. And hearing that was what caused me to want to go into a law and to figure out, all right, if we're in the realm of policy and we need to change policy, how do we do that? The We both went to the University of Michigan School of Law, and there I was introduced forcefully the, to the Socratic method. And also, we were taught how to think through a court opinion, which was facts, rationale, holding. And I was wondering if one, that those were some of your experiences in law school, and if so, how did that sort of wed or work with the analytical training you just articulated you received at MIT as an economist? I think that a lot of the same professors that you had were still there at the University of Michigan when I was there, and they still taught using the same methods as well. What I finally learned, I think, in my second year of law school was that rather than writing an 800-page treatise of notes, like you saw in the paper chase about a particular legal subject, there was a better way of looking at law, which is that as a lawyer, you're just asked to solve some problems. Somebody comes to you with a set of facts. You have to figure out what the problems are that they're describing, what information is relevant to them, and then how do the legal doctrines affect that, and how do they affect your analysis. That is very similar to what you do as an economist, and which is you look at the data you have, the situation you have, and you try to solve a problem. It actually winds up simplifying your analysis and the methods that you use to analyze the problems. Scott, after law school, where did you start your early professional career? I went to a great statistical research firm called MPR Associates. I don't think it's still available or around, but it was located in Berkeley, California, and I was privileged to do statistical analysis for lawyers, for businesses, sometimes for the government as well, always under the supervision of the people who had the real training with the PhDs. Did you actually move out to Berkeley? I did. My wife, who was then my fiance at the time, was taking a degree at Berkeley. And so I moved out there to be with her and and worked there for a couple of years and loved the Bay Area. That's a pretty impressive trek from Boston to Ann Arbor to Berkeley and the Bay Area. What was that part of your journey? Was it culture shock? Was it interesting to see a very different perspective, certainly in Ann Arbor from MIT and then moving out to Berkeley? It was great. Actually, it was like being at home because... Silicon Valley was taking off, and I would say that 75% of my closest friends from MIT had moved out to the Bay Area, so it was like we continued college. We went camping together, socialized together, and, and the Bay Area was really different climate, of course, and different geography, but very similar to Boston. You've got the ocean right near you, you've got the mountains. Berkeley had better weather, though. The, were you doing litigation support? Were you doing research papers? Were you doing policy positions? What was your work at this point in your career? 
mostly litigation support. Sometimes it was analyzing what damages would be from a settlement and how those might change if you settled today rather than a year from now. Sometimes it was analyzing focus groups where, say, jury consultants were talking to potential jurors or samples of people who could be jurors and trying to figure out what they thought were the important issues in a case. Sometimes it had to do with people's views about the death penalty and analyzing survey results as well. Did, could you tell us about your move into actually the law firm world or legal work? Yes, I first was a clerk at, for a judicial, for a federal judge in Kansas City for about two years after law school. And that was the place where I really concentrated on criminal law and realizing that's something that I wanted to do. It was a surprise to me that I was interested in criminal law, but it turns out that I had grown up reading mysteries like Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, Sherlock Holmes, Miss Marple, Father Brown, and I even had my own fingerprint kit and had written to the director of the FBI when I was a kid. I had my own crime lab in my basement. Although I was surprised that I was interested in criminal law, I shouldn't have been because it was something I'd been interested in when I was a kid. And so when I went to the mid-sized law firms, I really was careful to select law firms that would allow me to focus on criminal defense and doing internal investigations. And that's a lot of what I did. A lot of what attracted me to those law firms and attracted them to me was the fact that I understood technology and could be effective in cases that involve technology. I could talk to engineers, I could talk to scientists, and then translate those not only for the lawyers, but also for their for filings that we would have to do, or memos that we would have to do as well, for non-technical audiences. Was this work in the Bay Area, or had you migrated back to Boston at this point? It started out in Portland, Oregon, and I was there for three years at a mid-sized firm there. And then I came back to Boston as well and did that for two years. You also mentioned that you had the opportunity to do constitutional work. And I think every lawyer dreams and or fantasizes about that in law school. We rarely get the chance to, in most civil practices, and in my career maybe once or twice. But tell me what that was like, actually having work in a constitutional practice. It was fantastic. We had a partner, Charlie Hankel, who was a constitutional scholar, essentially. And what he, a lot of his practice focused on was whether big businesses in public areas like shopping plazas or shopping malls were public forums. And so whether somebody who wanted to come in and set up a soapbox and stand up on the soapbox and start petitioning or holding forth with speeches on private property, whether that was constitutionally protected under state constitutions or the U.S. Constitution. And I was fortunate to help him out with that a bit. And then that led to some other sorts of constitutional questions for the ACLU. That debate is still going on today on the forums of Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and other social media platforms. That's correct. very interesting. Could you tell us a little bit more about your work when you got back to Boston? Immediately upon coming back to Boston, I joined Foley Hoag, a fantastic law firm, and headed out to Ireland and was working with a couple of partners on a, a big criminal investigation re representing some employees. And so was privileged to do a lot of interviewing people and then watching the interactions between the prosecutors 
and the employees as well. I got to do a lot of pro bono work as well, which was representing victims of domestic violence because Foley-Hoeg really promotes a strong pro bono commitment. I was also seconded to the district attorney's office for, for in Norfolk County where I worked as an assistant district attorney full-time, full-time doing trials, motion hearings, and that was what really cemented in my mind that going to the government and prosecuting was something that I wanted to do. Scott, that seems like a great place to end this episode. I hope our listeners will join us again where we get to explore you getting to engage in that love of working as a prosecutor, and I look forward to continuing this conversation. I do too. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again.
Audrey, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode where we take a look at you moving into something that you said you would never do, which is the CCO chair. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.